Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Paul Saladino, who's going to enlighten us about the carnivore diet, which I'm sure you've heard a lot about recently, primarily used to treat autoimmune disease. And uh, initially I was highly skeptical, except for those who, who clearly found benefit from treating their autoimmune problems. But once I listened to Paul explain the uh, detailed analysis and justification for this approach, I was really changed my position. So what uh, surprises me though, is that he is a relative newcomer to the field and he's still finishing his, his training. He's still a resident. I mean, soon to be graduated, but still a resident nevertheless. And what I want to explore initially, and you'll see real quickly how bright this guy is. And he really is an exception. Most physicians do not dive deep into the literature and be, develop an expertise that is so profound. And I want to explore that first because you'll, you'll see real quickly the level of his knowledge on this subject. It will astound you, I, I assure you. So welcome and thank you for joining us. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and share it with everybody. Yeah, they're going to really be astounded by what you have to share. But before we start, and I'll let, I'll let you take it over, but I, I want to understand deeply, and I, and I emailed you this last night, how you got to be so comprehensively knowledgeable about this topic. Because as I said in the intro, most physicians do not dive deep into the literature. Now, and you're still a, a physician in training, although you were a PA before you started, so you have some experience there. So walk us through your journey to get here. Oh, it's been a, a pretty interesting journey, quite circuitous, you know. So I graduated from college in uh, 1999. I went to the College of William and Mary and studied chemistry and biology and did a whole bunch of molecular biology research there. My dad's a doctor. And so I kind of had this, you know, I had this kind of steeped in medicine throughout my career, throughout my pre my pre-career years and throughout my childhood. I'd always seen medicine as something I was interested in and I'd always been interested in the way that you know health and disease affected quality of life and the way that food affected the way that I felt as a human being. I've been an athlete for most of my life, uh, running and backcountry skiing and climbing mountains. And so I was always kind of tuned into connections between food and health and disease. But when I got out of college, I thought, you know what, I'm going to take some time off. And maybe this was the genesis of trying to think outside of the box or wanting to think about things differently or being curious about different ways of looking at paradigms. But I took six years off after college and just spent the time in the mountains exploring and adventuring. And wow. perhaps I already had, you know, perhaps I already had this sort of seed within me of just questioning norms and asking interesting questions or being very curious. But if, if I didn't, that time certainly, you know, kind of fed that. I threw hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, which is a trail that goes from Mexico to Canada. It's 2,700 miles. I climbed mountains throughout the Pacific Northwest and the middle, you know, the, the Rockies and Cal Colorado and got into mountaineering and backcountry skiing. And eventually um, I realized that I really loved biology and I was really curious about some of these health questions and I wanted to go back to school. And, you know, my dad is a doctor. He's an internist, an incredible man who spent so much of his life caring for patients, but I also saw him spend a lot of time working and not a lot of time being able to achieve balance um, and real 
um, real, you know, self, self work. And so my original inclination was to go to physician assistant school. So I went to PA school at the George Washington University, and then eventually started working in cardiology with a group of cardiologists in Bend, Oregon. Cardiology was kind of originally a good fit for me because, because I thought, you know, I was a runner at the time. I was so interested and cardiology is fascinating. As you know, it's just such an interesting conglomerate of blood pressure and lipids and interesting drugs and how we can manipulate the body in these fascinating ways. So I just thought it was such an interesting field to go into. And, but what I realized quickly, and this is what maybe is unique about my training is that I sort of, I kind of cheated, you know, I went to medical school twice, <laughs> you know, like not everybody gets to go to medical school twice. So what happened was that well, I went well, let's to stop there because some people may not understand what a PA is, but it's in my view, it's a shortcut to being a physician. You essentially have almost nearly identical practicing privileges, although under the authority of a supervising physician. And you would see the same two years of basic clinical science, except it's accelerated. So, you know, it, 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 you did go to med school essentially twice. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the PA school was pretty wild. And the process of getting into PA school is often felt to be just as rigorous as getting into medical school because they know they only have you for two years and they have to teach you essentially what you're going to learn in four years of medical school. So I went to two years of PA school and I loved it. I just, I loved it. But you know, the first time I learned medicine, I could only see it as a neophyte. I could only see it as a new person and I couldn't get the perspective. And so this is what was so interesting about my training is that once I started practicing as a PA, that was sort of my first medical career. And in the beginning, I was just interested in like this beta blocker or that beta blocker or nuances of one statin or another or nuances of one type of arrhythmia and reading AKGs. But what quickly happened for me in my training was that I had this curiosity just bubble up and it became a passion and obsession to understand what was at the root mm. of a disease whether it was atherosclerosis or hypertension or atrial fibrillation or, you know, I was primarily dealing with cardiovascular diseases, but I didn't expect this to happen. And it, it took maybe about a year of actual clinical practice after PA school, but I started just having this massive curiosity about what was causing these things. You know, I wanted to know how to change the course of a disease, how to get to the root cause of a disease. I know this is what you're fascinated by too. And it unites a lot of us in these fields is, what is causing a disease? That is the most interesting question to me in medicine. It's just fascinating. And so that similarly birthed my second career in medicine and, you know, was the beginning of the end of my first career in medicine because I realized very quickly into my career as a physician assistant that I was going to uh, want to go back to medical school to, you know, to get an MD, to get a doctoral degree, to continue my training, to have you know, the ability to track to practice as a physician and to do that practice from the perspective of someone looking for root causes of diseases. And that's really been my focus. So I ended up working as a PA in cardiology for four years. And at that point, I went back to medical school at the University of Arizona in Tucson, which has a pretty strong history of integrative medicine. That's where Andrew Weil is. Yeah, they, they have the Center for Integrative Medicine there. And so I was able to work with those physicians and at that time, I sort of discovered functional medicine. There are all sorts of names that people give to root cause medicine now. And I think they're all good, whether it's integrative or functional medicine or whatever. But, you know, this is, this is really what became my passion. And 
as, as I'm sure you will understand, what, what I began to describe for myself, what I began to discover in medical school, and as I looked at medicine differently, was that food seemed to be such a huge part. You know, the things that we were putting into our body really seemed to be a big part of what created health and disease. You know, I've... Sure. Well, let me, I, let me stop you there because we've got yeah. so much to go into, and I just want to uh, applaud and acknowledge that you are indeed a pretty uncommon anomaly <laughs> in this field. It, at least in my experience, it is the rare physician who has this type of motivation to seek the fundamental cause of disease and have this intrinsic, just burning curiosity that drives you. My guess is it's less than 1%, and it probably is less than 1% of 1%. So you are an anomaly. Thank God for people like you, because it's only individuals like you are going to push us ahead. So I really applaud your efforts. And uh, so and thank you for sharing that perspective of how you got to this, because I'm sure virtually anyone who's really curious about what you're going to share next is going to ask the same question. Because when I've looked at your, you know, I've watched about two to four hours of your previous interviews, and I I, that was the, the first question I had. How did you get to be so darn knowledgeable about this field? But not, that not, your explanation provides it. So why don't you step us through the, your journey into your first encounter uh, and exploration of carnivore diet, and then you can just take it from there. So, you know, this is, this is where the story, I think, really gets interesting. And just like my time as a PA was instructive and kind of set the stage for my kind of self-examination and my realization that root cause medicine was what I wanted to do. It was probably the seven years that followed that, four years in medical school and my first three years of residency. Right now I'm in my, the last month of my four years of residency at the University of Washington. So I've got one month left to finish residency, but it was really the first seven years of my medical training after being a PA that kind of set the stage for this next sort of exploration, curiosity, realization for me. And what those seven years were for me was this, I mean, I'd already knew a lot of medicine. You know, I went to PA school. I've been practicing for four years. So I had this incredible privilege to see medicine through the eyes of someone who had been in the trenches, more or less. And I thought, okay, now I'm learning medicine again. What is going on here? And I, I, every time I learned something, I thought, what is the root cause here? What is going on? And what, and what happened for me was this constant kind of disappointment, this constant sort of struggle realizing, ah, the pharmaceuticals are incredible, but they're not treating the root cause and people don't often get better. So what I say now is that I was looking for, I was looking for sharp tools. I was looking for, I was looking for tools that worked. And what I found for the first seven years, for the most part, and I hope this won't sound flippant, but what I found for the first seven years of my training was tools that didn't work. You know, I've joked with my colleagues that I feel like for most of residency and, and medical school, I was being tasked with fighting a Tyrannosaurus Rex with a plastic spork. You know, you're being tasked with treating complex disease, whether it's psychiatric disease or autoimmune disease. And I would actually formulate most psychiatric disease as autoimmune. But I was being asked to treat, you know, in medical school, complex autoimmune disease, complex chronic disease, diabetes, inflammatory diseases with, with, a, with a plastic spork. And by that, I mean, I was asked to treat those things with, which, with tools that didn't treat the root cause, which weren't that powerful. And so what I saw for seven years was people who got a little bit of relief, 5% relief, 3% relief, and then relapsed or got worse or had a bad side effect or had a bad complication of a medication that we gave them. And 
you know, for seven years, it was this process of sort of losing my religion again and thinking, oh man, I just haven't seen powerful tools. I'd seen glimmers. I'd seen glimpses of powerful tools, but I was on the search for powerful tools. I wanted something that, that looked like it could really start to address the actual root causes. And like I said, I kind of had this suspicion that it was diet. And, and what I'm learning is that there may be a, uh, an ideal diet for, for everyone, or it might be individualized, or there might be some of both in there. But when I discovered the carnivore diet, I'd, I'd been thinking about ancestral norms and evolutionary ideas. Where have humans come from? You know, what, are, what is written in our book of life? How do we eat? what is the most congruent way of eating for humans that is going to give us optimal health? I kind of been thinking about that throughout medical school and residency, but all of my iterations hadn't really been as effective as I hoped they would be. And then I discovered kind of this notion that is the carnivore diet and it's super radical. And I, I'm so excited to tell people about it and share more with you about it. But you know, when I first heard about it, I think I heard Jordan Peterson Mm -hmm. on the Joe Rogan podcast. And he talked about his daughter, Michaela. And Michaela Peterson has an incredible story. She had very bad juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which is a significant autoimmune inflammatory issue, which caused her to have multiple joint uh, replacements at a young age and pretty much crippled her. And she kind of discovered this way of eating only animal meat. And we can go into how I would construct a carnivore diet. I really believe you should eat the whole animal, but you know, and what happened for her slowly, and she describes this kind of arduous journey over months, weeks to months, was that her symptoms slowly started to improve. And I thought, that is a wild story. You know, in medicine, we talk about case reports. And we, I love case reports because I wanted to see how things actually worked at a real level. And so I love seeing, you know, someone with a problem and then something improving it. And so it was so striking to me that someone like Michaela Peterson could essentially reverse and completely heal from juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and then the depression that was connected with it probably because of the concomitant immunologic and inflammatory mechanisms with this radical dietary change and I thought that is really striking I want to study that and then Jordan Peterson talks about the fact that he had kind of anxiety and sleep apnea and other issues himself and they improved when he started eating a an animal based diet and I thought isn't that fascinating because for the last seven, 12 years, I've been thinking, we've sort of been told plants are good for you. Plants are the answer. Plants are the best thing for humans. And I love that this notion just turned it all on its head and it just tipped everything over. And you thought, wait a minute, it kind of makes sense. Maybe plants don't want to get eaten and maybe plants aren't good for humans. And at the beginning, I was very skeptical and I thought, I really need to dig into this. And so I did, but I loved I loved the adventure and I think that's the old, that's the previous life, you know, that's the ski bomb, that's the through hiker on the Pacific Crest Trail. Like it was such an intriguing idea. It was like somebody handed me a treasure map and said, hey, this is cool. You should go see what's at the end of this map. You should see where X marks the spot. And I thought, this is such an intriguing concept. I wanna pursue it. I really wanna dive in here because this fundamental premise, this idea that plants and humans and plants and herbivores or plants and animals have co-evolved and every one of us, you know, every life form really has one goal and that's to push its DNA into the next species and to continue the lineage of that species. You know, a mustard plant wants the mustard plant to continue. An oak tree wants the oak tree to continue. And life and ecology is this beautiful intermingling of all these species 
working together, but fighting and eating each other and trying to kill each other, but sometimes being symbiotic. And this concept that maybe plants don't want to get eaten after all. And maybe this narrative, this unconditional narrative, I should say, that all plants are good for you all the time, maybe we should question that. And that's a pretty radical concept because I think even within the functional medicine sphere, there's this notion that all plants are good for you and the more plants you eat, the better. But this really counterculture disruptive concept that for some people, perhaps for all of us, perhaps just for some people, plants could be triggering autoimmunity through a variety of mechanisms is really intriguing. And that was just the, that's been the most exciting adventure in my medical career, you know, this treasure map that I've been following. So here I am, you know, just like way down the rabbit hole, just digging in. Well, great. Did you uh, integrate any of Stephen Gundry's information on the lectins that may be contributing to autoimmune disease in, the, in, he, in his book, The Plant Paradox, which pretty accurately describes his premise, how plants, which are allegedly beneficial for us, can be harmful at times? Absolutely. Yeah. I had heard of lectins before I kind of dove into the carnivore world. And, you know, those seven years in medical school and residency, I'd experimented with all sorts of different diets and I had kind of my own issues that I was trying to improve. I had eczema. And as a kid, I had asthma. So I've always had this kind of atopic tendency. Um, eczema is this kind of itchy skin condition that people will know about. And they, it goes hand in hand with asthma in this sort of ectopic sphere, this ectopic group of, uh, this atopic group of conditions. And uh, so I was thinking, you know, throughout medical school and residency, why do I have this eczema? It gets really bad sometimes. I got, I got very much into jujitsu when I was in medical school and at one point got such bad eczema on my knees that I got impetigo. The, the eczema got super infected and that's impetigo is when the, you know, a skin infection gets super infected with, um, with a strep bacteria. But, you know, it, it was an, I had these things that were kind of just nagging and I thought, you know, I'm doing paleo. I'm doing autoimmune paleo. I'm eating 100% organic. I'm trying to remove the highest lectin foods and and I'm still having these issues. There's something I'm missing here. There's something I'm missing. And, and so that was kind of always the driver. I always wanted to optimize. I wanted to understand, could I be a little better? Because I, I knew that my experience would, would be the first step toward understanding what my patients were going through. And I, I think that one of the fascinating ideas in medicine is that, or one of the ways that I differ greatly from mainstream medicine in my conceptualization, my nosology, is that I don't believe in 76,000 diseases I believe in like five diseases and everybody manifests them a little differently, you know? And so I kind of knew that my autoimmune disease was probably the same as almost everybody else's autoimmune disease. And if I could understand what was triggering my autoimmune disease, maybe that would be the first start of this journey, this first thread that I could pull on to understand what was causing other people's autoimmune diseases because autoimmunity, inflammation, these are almost synonyms and gosh, if we can understand that, we can help a lot of people. A lot of people need that help. So I was just going through this process and Stephen Gundry's work was a part of it. Although I think that uh, now I would disagree with him on many issues. And we really? That's surprising. <laughs> I'd be curious to see where your disagreements are. Well, you know, he was recently on, on Ben Greenfield's podcast. One of the, one of the ideas. Yeah. What's that? Say it again. Just a week or two ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, Stephen, Stephen uh, has some great ideas about lectins and he's done a great job at sort of popularizing the notion that lectins are contributing to disease. But he, he has said, I don't put words in his mouth, but I've heard him say that he's a plant predator. And I think that he, what he's done is sort of create this paradigm whereby 
he's, he's tried to create the lowest lectin plant-based diet that he can with a small amount of meat. And I, I, I've spoken about this before, but I think that he and many others are misunderstanding a series of studies done in the 60s and 70s with rodents and methionine overfeeding that suggested that excess levels of methionine would shorten the levels the lives of these rodents because Stephen Gundry and some other people have said, oh, animal protein shortens uh, lives of humans. And I, I've heard him say this. He said, I wish it weren't the case, but it is. And I'm thinking, why do you, why do you think animal protein shortens humans' lives? And we can get into this if we talk about mTOR and leucine and stuff as well. But well, Campbell's written a lot about that too. And there's a lot of vegan physicians who hold that position. Right, right. And my impression, and I, I always try really hard. I was actually a vegan 13 or 14 years ago. So I, was, I kind of explored that and I'm, I'm fascinated by that way of thinking. And I like to understand the plant-based arguments and see what they're offering as well. My impression is that most of the plant-based physicians, when they're saying that animal protein shortens lives, if they're, they're referring to these methionine studies. And the idea here was that in rodents, so in rice, in mice and rats, um, when they overfeed methionine, which is one of the sulfur-containing amino acids, they do see shortening of the lifespan. And, and mice and rat diets are very different than humans, and they have chow, and they're not eating like mice salad and mice steaks. So it's, it's this contrived model in some sense, but we can adjust how much methionine is in a mouse or a rat diet. And what they see is that when they push the amount of methionine in a diet up to 2% or a little more, they'll get a small, they'll get a decrease, a significant decrease in the lifespan of the rodent. And their conclusion originally was, oh, their excess methionine is shortening people's lives or could shorten human lives as well. And there's actual biochemistry to suggest why that might be case. And animal protein is richer in methionine. So animal protein could shorten human lives or animal protein may be leading to shorter, shorter or smaller uh, amounts of longevity for humans. And, uh, you know, Stephen Gundry has kind of said this and I always think like, uh, I really want to sit down with him at coffee and say like, let's talk about this. Because if you look at the rest of the studies, what they show, and this is the fascinating part, is that when they did the next study they did, they took the methionine out of the diet a little bit. So they did methionine restriction. And what did they see? They saw lengthening of the, of the life of the rats. And they, okay, that's interesting. And that was sort of, you know, further uh, strengthening their first hypothesis. But then the magical thing happened. And they gave them a, a large amount of methionine or the same amount of methionine, 2% in the diet, with more glycine. And what did they see? They saw extension of the, of the lifespan. And so then they realized, and this is what I think everybody's leaving out, is that it's not about the excess methionine, it's about the imbalance in the methionine-glycine ratio. And we know this from human biochemistry. If you look at the folate cycle, if you look at methylation, if you look at the way we handle methyl groups, and methionine is a methyl-containing amino acid, and we know um, that homocysteine is converted to methionine by a series of enzymes. This involves the MTHFR gene, which makes L5-methylfolate, and then your body uses L5-methylfolate with homocysteine and the enzymes MTR and MTRR. I hope I'm not getting too granular here for people to convert to add a methyl group to homocysteine to make methionine. 
So methionine is the methyl donor for SAMe. And SAMe does all these methylation uh, reactions, or methionine, I should say, is the precursor to SAMe. SAMe is S-adenosyl methionine. As SAMe does all these methylation reactions in the body. But what we know is that excess methionine is buffered by glycine. So our body will use glycine to buffer methionine. And so if we get too many methyl groups and we don't have the corresponding amino acids to buffer them, the biochemistry can get kind of messed up. And then the, the hypothesis, which I think is fairly compelling, is that too many sulfur-containing amino acids can create oxidative stress. Homocysteine is a sulfur-containing amino acid. I think there's good evidence that too much homocysteine probably causes oxidative stress by the same mechanism. So what we're looking at is a balance between sulfur and non-sulfur-containing amino acids, and we need the glycine, which doesn't have any sulfur, to sort of balance and buffer the methionine. And there is this interesting concept that if we eat too much methionine, we will imbalance glycine. And glycine is such a crucial amino acid. If we use up all of our glycine to buffer methionine, we won't have enough glycine to make two very critical proteins. That would be collagen and glutathione. And I know you've spoken a ton about glutathione and your listeners yeah, will know well, all about that. Let me just insert here also that aside from those important amino acids for sure, another one of our passions are NAD, the coenzymes NAD and NADPH. And you could perhaps expand on that a little bit, but glycine, you're absolutely correct, is, is one of the important amino acids to construct glutathione, but it's also really important to increase your NADPH levels, which is massively crucial to keep your antioxidants recharged. So why don't you talk about that and then how the glycine isn't part of the nose to tail concept that you're promoting. Yeah, so this is super fascinating. If we look at glycine, it's this magical little amino acid. You know, it's, I think it's gotta be the simplest amino acid. Small, for sure, yes. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's an interesting idea because if you look at where methionine and glycine are found in animals, in muscle meat, Muscle meat is about 2% methionine and about 7 to 8% glycine. So there's more glycine than methionine in muscle meat. But then if you look at connective tissue, connective tissue is about 0.9% methionine and about 23, 24% glycine, which isn't surprising because connective tissue is essentially mostly collagen. And we know that collagen is usually constructed of three amino acids, which are glycine, proline, and hydroxyproline. And so we would expect that a collagen, a collagenous tissue would be mostly glycine, proline, and hydroxyproline in a, essentially uh, you know, a one-to-one-to-one -one -one ratio, making up about 90% of it, you know, about 30% of the, of, the of, the, of, of the amino acids in collagen are glycine because it's one-third of the molecule. Mm -hmm. So what we see is that there's a real difference in the collagenous tissue versus the muscle meat. And so when we are thinking about eating a carnivorous diet, I am a strong advocate for this concept of nose to tail eating. This idea that evolutionarily, our ancestors were certainly eating the whole animal, both from a spiritual perspective, a respect perspective for the animal, and from a functional, you know, pragmatic perspective. They wanted all the calories and all the nutrients. And if you look at an animal, there are unique nutrients in the muscle meat, and there is a whole unique set of nutrients in the liver, and then a, a whole set of a unique sort of amino acid composition in the connective tissue, and there are unique nutrients in the bones, and there are unique nutrients in the bone marrow and the fatty tissues. And so you can see this animal as this sort of fascinating partitioning of nutrients. And 
the, the idea of a carnivore diet or a whole foods animal-based diet became much more viable for me when I realized and I remembered and sort of relearned studying anthropology that our ancestors were in fact eating the whole animal and that every indigenous culture that I'm aware of on the planet that's living now eats the whole animal. And so then you think, oh, now it makes sense. It's not just about eating steak. You're really getting this incredibly diverse array of nutrients in the whole animal. And when you, when you sort of look at this from a first principles approach and break it down, if you, we have a pretty good sense. I don't ever want to believe that as physicians or in the medical profession, we understand everything that a human needs, but we have a pretty darn good sense of the vitamins and minerals that a human needs. And one of the most elegant symmetries in this process or this hypothesis of eating animals nose to tail is this idea that you, that I strongly believe that there's evidence for you can get all the nutrients that a human needs to function optimally eating an animal nose to tail. I mean, you can get every single thing that we need. And it's really interesting to kind of break it down and say, oh, you're getting calcium in the bones. You're getting copper to balance the zinc in the liver. You're getting this B vitamin in the liver. You're getting this B vitamin in the muscle meat. But what we find is that we have to eat the whole animal. If we just eat the muscle meat, we're really going to be missing out on nutrients. But that's such an incredible postulate to say, wait a minute, I can get all the nutrients that I need as a human by eating an animal nose to tail? That's incredible. It's like a multivitamin. It's like the best multivitamin ever. And then I would argue further that, that, that animal-based nutrients are much more bioavailable than plant-based nutrients. And they're in the right ratios, which are incredible if you look at zinc and copper or calcium and magnesium. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it from, a, from a, you know, a, an evolutionary perspective. A deer or an, an elephant is a mammal. They're much more similar to a human operating system than a, to a human physiology than a plant is. So you know, we can get some nutrients from plants, but an animal looks so much more like us that it's so much more compatible with our biochemistry when we take it in. And the last part of the equation is that we can do all that, eating animals nose to tail, without any of the anti-nutrients, which we can talk about, that might be present in plants. And it appears that some people may be, may be uniquely sensitive to those anti-nutrients. And I would, my hypothesis, my postulate about that is that that may be the root cause of a lot of autoimmunity. But going back you know, to your original question, this is totally true. What you're saying is that when we eat nose to tail, we're getting glycine in the, in the connective tissue to balance the methionine in the muscle meat. The glycine does help us make NADPH. If we look at the red blood cell, it's a great illustration of how NADPH is involved in glutathione because you get this enzyme G6PD, which is glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase. This is a very elegant illustration of what happens here. So what happens is that when you ingest you know, um, glucose, your body makes, you know, glucose 6-phosphate. And this enzyme glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase dehydrogenates glucose 6-phosphate into a very complex molecule. But that process generates NADPH. And your body uses that NADPH to reduce oxidized glutathione, as you were referring to. And that process, that cycle of glutathione being reduced once it's been oxidized is crucial to human life. Glutathione is this molecular policeman. We talked about it. One of the amino acids in glutathione is glycine, which we need. And the glutathione molecule moves around the body, donating electrons. So glutathione becomes oxidized. Loss of electrons is oxidation. Glutathione donates electrons to free radical containing molecules, lipid peroxides, in order to sort of 
quell that reactive species. It's this molecular policeman that says, hey, calm down. You're acting, you're acting a fool. Calm down. You know, it's taking people who are disorderly and calming them down. And then glutathione has lost an electron. So now that NADPH molecule serves this crucial purpose of giving glutathione back that electron, regenerating all our police force and keeping us safe from oxidative stress. What happens in people who have G6PD deficiency is that they can't do that conversion between glucose 6-phosphate and the dehydrogenation step. And um, they don't generate enough NADPH. They don't regenerate glutathione in the, in the red blood cells. And because red blood cells don't have any mitochondria, that's the only way that they can generate glutathione. And so when we put oxidative stressors into the system of people who have G6PD deficiency, whether that's fava beans with their oxidatively active compound, which I think is called divinine, um, we can create hemolysis or hemolytic crisis in people with G6PD. So it's just an illustration of how important glycine is to make NADPH, to make glutathione, the way that glutathione is this molecular policeman. And the fact that, again, it's kind of a roundabout way of also saying that there are these plant molecules, uh, favism, you know, there are these plant toxins in, in fava beans that can be dangerous to people who can't do that conversion well. So it's this really kind of intricate system that works together very elegantly. Okay, great. So thank you for the explanation. And of course, uh, you had mentioned that the red blood cells don't have mitochondria. It's really one of the only cells in the body or types of cells in the body that doesn't. Uh, and that not only does is it important for them to make glutathione, but that's that pathway, the G6PD pathway, is also responsible for creating the energy for them to function. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And I want you to now comment on your perception of the uh, percentage of people who are following a carnivore diet like you advocate, nose to tail. Certainly, Michaela Peterson is not. And just as an aside, too, I, I'm absolutely convinced because I've treated thousands of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Juvenile rheumatoid arthritis is very rare. It's way less than 1% of the, the rheumatoid arthritis population. But I've treated a number of those, too. But one of the uh, important components of JRA or ARA is that they're almost universally vitamin D deficient. And Michaela lives in Canada. And almost <laughs> Any Canadian is vitamin D deficient unless they're swallowing a lot of oral vitamin D. And I am certain from listening to her story that she wasn't. So that was an element too. But so why don't you comment, the, the direct question, and you can take it from there, is what percentage of the people currently recommending and adhering to a carnivore, carnivore diet are eating nose tail? Oh, I think it's growing, hopefully. I would say my estimate would be 50%. Maybe wow, that high. Maybe, uh, I mean, I, maybe it's only 30. I, I suppose I'm gathering folks gradually. <laughs> there, are, there, are others, there are others in the community who are also advocating for nose to tail. You know, interestingly, I actually spoke to Michaela recently and she did say that she's eating liver. So she's, yeah. yes, yes. So she's doing, I think she's doing, she's doing better with regard. And I, and, and I, I believe that Jordan is also eating liver now. So, so they're doing closer to nose to tail now um and so that that i think is a huge huge piece of the equation so they're, they're getting they're getting close and i think they're doing better with that uh, i was really happy to hear that or the connective tissue <laughs> yeah and they're they're getting there and, and that that can also depend on which cut of meat we eat too you know this idea that some people find the connective tissue and the collagen to be the easiest way to get glycine or 
if we probably if we just eat connective tissue from the animal, you know, if we were eating tendons or not cutting the chewy tendon or the chewy bits off your steak, you're going to get collagen and glycine that way too. So it's sort of a re it's a re uh, a redefinition of the way that we imagine eating steaks. You know, uh, if you're going to eat nose to tail, you don't want to cut out all the fatty bits or all the collagenous chewy bits of your steak. Those are those are precious nutrition. <laughs> So, so I think that maybe, I don't know, I mean, maybe it's an, maybe it's a, an overly optimistic thing, but I think that at least 40% of people are, are, are trying, um, uh, are trying to do it. And, and I see more and more people and I get these posts, I get these messages on Instagram every day now, which really make me happy. They, they, they say, oh, you know, I, I did carnivore once. I didn't feel great. And some people do carnivore as meat only and feel, feel good. And that's awesome. Um, I do have worries about long-term nutrient deficiencies, but if they're feeling good, then, then I'm happy for them. But then a lot of people try it and they don't feel good on just meat or meat and eggs. And then they try more of a nose to tail approach and they'll send me a message and say, Hey, I tried a more nose to tail approach and it's working better. My digestion is better. Or I have more energy or I feel better. And that makes me really happy. I think, Oh, that's great. I'm so happy that they're doing better with that, with that suggestion. So yeah, I think it's growing. That's good. That's good. So what do you think it is possible to, for those who don't particularly enjoy connective tissue or collagen supplements to receive most of the benefits from just using a glycine supplement, which is real, relatively inexpensive and it actually tastes sweet like sugar. So it's really easy to consume. It's not bitter at all. Uh, and you could take it. A lot of people are advocating and I personally take some glycine supplements and I, and I take collagen. I take 30, 40 grams of collagen protein a day, but I still take the glycine because it's such a magnificent amino acid. I, I agree 100% with you. I agree 100%. And I recommend this to my patients uh, when they have histamine issues or if we're trying to figure out sensitivities to bone broth. And, and the histamine thing is quite complicated, um, but it's, it seems that some people, you know, probably because of glutamate and in, in the formation of bone broths or, you know, the hydrolysis process of collagen may form compounds that are glutamatergic in the brain, they seem to have some sensitivities to those things. In that case, glycine is a great option for people. Like you said, it's kind of a magic hack, um, for lack of a better word. It's sweet like sugar. And so people could add it to a warm beverage. I mean, as we will talk about, I, I, I have some concerns about tannins and teas, you know, mm -hmm. maybe potentially causing uh, irritation of the gut, but they can add it to things and it is sweet. Um, it's not a hard thing to take at all. Even if you just put collagen in water, or excuse me, glycine in water, people will find, oh, I've used it as like a recovery drink or something after a workout and it's very easy to take. It's very pleasant. So, okay, so you know, the other thing, yeah, go ahead. No, no go finish, finish your comment. The other thing that I run into sometimes is that people um, struggle to eat organ meats. And this is a really unique thing that I think is happening now. There are all sorts of great companies like Ancestral Supplements and some of these other companies that are now providing organ meats and desiccated and desiccated organ tablets. I love this. I love this trend in the space. You know, these companies we're starting to see supplements that are actually animals. You know, we can people can supplement with like desiccated liver if they absolutely can't get down liver. These companies are sourcing like grass-fed, you know, animals from New Zealand, and they can get brain and liver and pancreas and spleen. And, you know, a lot of people are finding improvements in histamine issues with kidney. And so the best thing would be to eat kidney because it has diamine oxidase, which is sort of this interesting thing. 
but a lot of people are taking now like the desiccated organ complex with kidney from ancestral supplements or another manufacturer and getting improvements in in histamine issues because of the DAO, the diamine oxidase that's in that. So it's, it's, I love that this is, the field is growing and there's, there's a space in the market for, you know, not everyone wants to eat liver or has access to kidney or access to brain. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's a neat trend happening as well. So it's becoming more and more doable because that's one of the criticisms of Nosatale is, I don't like liver or how am I going to get liver? And it's like, yeah. well, you can get this now. It's, it's available. Or, or they may be concerned about getting prions from the brain too. <laughs> That's another issue. But, <laughs> but uh, I want to talk now about one of the concerns and one of my skepticism about the benefits and the value of a carnivore diet, which is the chronic activation of mTOR. Sure. Uh, but as I thought about it, and especially after listening to some of your presentations, uh, it became obvious to me that the it seems like a perfect hybrid in marriage would be to integrate this strong activation of mTOR, which is useful. You know, just because you've got, a lot of people are afraid of mTOR, you know, they're, they're taking rapamycin supplements to, to suppress it all the time, but you need to activate mTOR, especially if you're young and healthy and you have any hope of ever gaining increased muscle mass. But if you, but if you activate it continuously, I think that's a prescription for metabolic disaster. So if you integrate a, um, autophagy cycle where you're going through fasting or partial fasting on regular basis, I think you can mitigate that effect and then really radically in, improve it. And, and then you'd be activating autophagy because you're, and, and I want you to talk to that and also to the fact that, which it wasn't intuitively obvious to anyone, but when you are on a carnivore diet, you're essentially, this is about as low carb as you get. There's virtually no carbohydrates. So you are going to be generating massive amount of ketones as a result. So you're already in ketosis, and then, it, then that doesn't necessarily mean you're activating autophagy because you're, you're actually inhibiting it with activating mTOR. So talk about that and integrating both of those approaches, and then, then we'll, we'll, we'll dive into autophagy and some of the polyphenols, polyphenols we referenced earlier because that's another fascinating discussion. Yeah, this is such an interesting discussion, and um, I think it really illustrates some points for people that are illustrating. That are uh, that are that are important to note at this point. So, you know, you and I have had some awesome conversations prior to this. You know, about how we activate mTOR and um, what I have learned in speaking with you and Ben Beekman and people who are deep in the space is that there are a couple of ways to activate mTOR. And I'm sure your listeners are aware, but in case they're not, mTOR is the mammalian target of rapamycin. It would be, you know, in a, in a gross oversimplification is it's kind of like the, it's the anabolic lever, you know, it's the, it's the build your body up side of your metabolism and it's balanced by AMP kinase, which is kind of the more catabolic. So when we're eating, um, whatever we're eating, whether it's carbohydrates or protein, we're sort of activating mTOR and we'll dig into that. When we're not eating, um, we're generally triggering AMP kinase. And so the mTOR is the mammalian target of rapamycin. There's that fascinating story about the discovery of rapamycin on Rapa Nui, which is Easter Island. But it's this incredibly interesting molecule that seems to inhibit mTOR. And it has some differential inhibition of mTORC1 versus mTORC2, which are the two complexes of mTOR, you know. But 
what we generally, I would agree with you, we probably don't want to overactivate mTOR. And again, this is an oversimplification and our overall understanding of this is evolving in medicine, but it does seem that overactivation of mTOR is too much. We don't want that. And that, that makes sense. You know, you don't always want to be anabolic in your life. There has to be a balance. This is sort of a Taoist concept. This is the yin and the yang, right? We need, we need on, we need off, we need balance and flow. And so what's fascinating to me about the mTOR story is that when I really dug into this, the literature would suggest that there are two ways to activate mTOR. And there are different mechanisms, but they both do it. One of them is protein, specifically leucine, and one of them is insulin. And so what we see in the literature, and there's not a ton about this, but there are a few studies. Exercise. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And so the, the, in terms of insulin and leucine, if we compare those, if we look in cell culture, I think it was done in human myotubes, insulin had a much greater effect on mTOR, turning it on, and the insulin effect acted much longer on the order of three to four hours. Leucine certainly will turn mTOR on, but it's a, it's a lesser effect. And I think relatively speaking at the risk of you know, putting a number on it, it was about 30% less. And then it did it for only about 45 minutes to one hour. So what we're seeing here is there, we can activate mTOR with protein, specifically leucine load, when there's going to be lots of leucine in pea protein or animal meat, you know, and, and people that are trying to build muscle on a vegan diet are going to use pea protein specifically because it's the only real source of enough leucine to get mTOR activation probably. But if we activate mTOR with leucine, it's kind of on and then off about an hour later. If we activate mTOR with insulin, then it's going to be on, but on for three to four hours. And so people can leverage this in whatever direction they want. But with regard to a carnivore diet, you know, some of the interesting discussion is around the question, will eating meat and a lot of meat, again, you're eating nose to tail, so you're not just eating meat, you're also eating connective tissue and fat, you know, and organ meats, but will eating a large amount of eat, meat, probably much more than the average person eats, overactivate mTOR. And I think what's interesting is that it probably won't if we look at the molecular mechanisms because it will primarily be the leucine switch of mTOR that we're turning on. So it'll be kind of like on, off, on, off, mm. rather than the insulin switch of mTOR. And so relatively speaking here, I think there's, a, there's an interesting possibility that if we're eating carbohydrates, we're going to trigger more mTOR through the actions of insulin and the insulin glucagon ratio than we are with protein. And so the carnivore diet is kind of a unique uh, example because like you said, there's essentially no carbohydrate. When we look at ketogenic diets like a carnivore diet, we know that insulin is very low. And then we look at fasting insulin, it's like less than three. You know, I've seen some carnivores with fasting insulin that are like two or 1.5, yeah. you know, the lowest fasting insulin levels I've ever seen. You know, when we eat food, insulin is going to rise, but on a, on a, in a ketogenic state, we know that insulin and glucagon are going to rise together. And that ratio is not really going to change. So this comes up a lot in discussions with people. They say, isn't eating a whole lot of protein going to spike my insulin? Isn't eating a whole lot of protein going to turn on gluconeogenesis? And my blood sugar is going to spike. And that's not what we see at all, especially on a carnivore diet, because the insulin and the glucagon are going to rise a little bit and they rise concomitantly so that the insulin glucagon ratio doesn't change. When the insulin glucagon ratio stays consistent, you're not really activating mTOR through insulin. You're not getting a big insulin spike at all. And you're not really switching over to 
uh, you're not really giving that big insulin hit that you'll see if you were to eat protein in a mixed state. So if someone's not in ketosis, if they're not fat adapted and you eat a bunch of protein, yes, you're going to get a good big spike in your insulin and that insulin glucagon ratio is going to change drastically. But this is in stark contradistinction to the way that insulin responds when you're in a ketogenic state. So this is what's kind of interesting about those two things. So I, I would say that there's pretty good evidence that we're not going to overactivate mTOR with leucine on a carnivore diet, and we're really not going to activate mTOR with insulin on a carnivore diet. And then the, the corollary is if we're really worried about overactivating insulin, uh, overactivating mTOR, we should think about carbohydrates more than we think about protein. And so this gets into this, the next part of the discussion is also really interesting around you know, what this means for humans who are trying to do bodybuilding or who are trying to activate autophagy. And I totally agree with you. And I think it's totally evolutionarily consistent to imagine that we were hunting animals and we were hunting a lot of animals mm -hmm. and we were hunting big animals and eating a nose to tail carnivore diet at times in our lives evolutionarily. But then we were also fasting a lot, you know, <laughs> when we didn't have an animal. So I think that, yeah, I think there's absolutely a role for intermittent fasting um, uh, time-restricted eating, longer fasts, 24, 48, 72 hours where you really shut everything off and you turn on AMP kinase and you think, you think about you know, really shutting mTOR down permanently for a little while and then turning it back on with protein and meat. So I think it's interesting. I think it's nice to have this more. I would argue that the meat or the animal foods are a, a little bit more of a precise switch for mTOR. You can just be like on, off, on, mm -hmm. off. And like you said, you can exercise, turn it on, get anabolic work, build muscle, regrow, and then do other phases where you're kind of breaking down, doing, you know, autophagy or apoptosis even, and, and totally recycling your cells. So yeah, I think it's an interesting kind of this, 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 this yin and yang of the cycle. Well, good. That was great uh, explanation. And thank you for bringing up the distinction that I don't think most people are aware. And I certainly wasn't until we dialogued about this and that the insulin is a far more profound activator of mTOR than the leucine is in, in a ketogenic state, which is a really important distinction. And, and for me, one of the primary just metabolic justifications for the carnivore diet. So uh, let, let's step into the autophagy phase and you're in agreement with the, the need for that. And you'll generate some autophagy with intermittent fasting. I believe it's a, probably the ideal is a six to eight hour to, to eat to eat. And I like to, I come to the recognition we're designed to sleep for eight hours, at least most of us. So wouldn't it make sense that we're designed to eat for eight hours and, and rest our gut for, you know, 16, 18 hours. So doing that on a daily basis is something that is, is a pattern I follow, but I don't, I, I may be mistaken, but I'm not convinced that that significantly increases autophagy. It increases to a certain extent, but not a lot. And to, to increase autophagy to the levels that you'd like, you've got to go beyond 24 hours, probably into the 40 hour range and then even beyond that. But I don't know if it's necessary to go beyond that because I think you might get 80 to 90% of the benefit at that level. And I came up with a book, Keto Fasting, which was published on April 30th, for a brand new book that discusses this partial fasting, which you can do once or even twice a week, assuming that you're not losing too much weight. And I, I'm very curious because you've been in this field for a while now and really delving into the literature and, and certainly applying it at a personal level. So I'm curious as to what your, your insights are on the frequency of this, because I think that is the, the, the relevant question is how frequent should you engage in this process? What is the timing of it? Is it once a week? Is it twice a week? And certainly the longer fasts are going to be less frequent. 
So I'm wondering if you've come, reached any conclusions or at least uh, insights at this point. I think, um, you know, you bring up some great points there that, that I, that I want to highlight around autophagy and stuff. And I totally agree that the fasting is, is a crucial part of it. And I, I recommend to all my clients, and I think a piece of the carnivore diet, the, the way that I see it is absolutely, like you say, a time-restricted eating window. And I think six to eight is probably ideal for most people as well. The other interesting piece of this is that a lot of people doing carnivore diets find themselves so satiated that they'll do one meal a day. So they get like a 23-hour fasting window wow. <laughs> and a, and a one-hour or a two-hour. They'll, they'll eat for like two hours or you know, they'll go to the, one of these like Brazilian steakhouses and just eat and that's it. They eat one meal a day. So they're having a long window. But personally, I, I eat two meals a day and, and I would say 90% of the days I'll get it within a six uh, to seven hour window and, and probably 95% of the days I get it within an eight hour window. I've personally found that my sleep is better when I just eat breakfast and lunch mm-hmm. and then skip dinner. Yes. Yep. And I have and I have more time to digest and everything is kind of done. I'm not digesting. I'm not doing anything really in terms of processing food by the time I go to sleep. A lot of people in terms of time-restricted eating will do lunch and dinner. And I think, oh, that's kind of the reverse. That doesn't make as much sense to me. But that I do agree with the time-restricted eating. And you want to hear an interesting insight on that? Yeah. I, 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 as far as I know, I'm the one who figured this out. Because I haven't heard anyone talk about it, but I'm sure you would appreciate this, is that it has to one of the other reasons, aside from putting your gut at rest is that many people aren't aware that the primary consumer of NADPH, which you referenced earlier, is consuming, is not creating fatty acids. And if you're eating food before you go to bed and you're providing your body with energy that you're not using, then you have to do something with that energy. So you store it as fat. In other words, your body needs to make fatty acids. And as a result of that creation, your NADPH levels plummet, thus reducing your body's ability to recharge your antioxidant structure. So I think that is really one of the most important features of not eating three or four hours before bedtime. Oh, I love it. I, I hadn't thought about that, but I think that that yeah. makes a ton, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I, I mean, I've heard, I've heard all kinds of people report that benefit. You know, I've heard Rhonda Patrick say, Oh, I, I realized that I, I eat, you know, I eat a long time before bed. I feel better. And I like to extend that window as long as I can and do like yeah. maybe, maybe seven hours before bed or six hours before bed. So yeah. I think it's something for people to talk to experiment with. And now that we've got all these devices like the aura ring and, you know, all these bands and stuff, people can, can see if their sleep quality changes. But I know I've seen guys like Dom D'Agostino and Peter Atia post about decreased sleep quality when they eat too close to bed or do a workout even too late. So it's such an interesting idea. But in terms of frequency of longer fasts, I think that that's, that's a brave new world. And I think, you know, you're asking great questions there that, that I hopefully will, you and I will keep trying to answer, you know, and experimenting. And I don't know. I mean, um, I think it would depend on body composition goals and potentially on the overall health of the individual and mm-hmm. what they can tolerate. You know, I have some clients that are really working hard to leverage autophagy for weight loss and loose skin. And, and I think in that case, you could do it more often, you know, as long as the metabolic parameters and all the electrolytes look good and you're under the supervision of a medical provider, you could do it more often and you could potentially do it, you know, you could do 72 hours and then refeed and then do another 72 hours and refeed. But, you know, I think you have to keep an eye on, on markers of inflammation, markers of, you know, uric acid and, and, you know, markers, you can check reduce and oxidize glutathione and make sure you're not overdoing it. But like you're saying, I think that there, there probably comes a point at which it becomes counterproductive. And it's interesting when I see these five day fasts or these seven day fasts and people start to see their testosterone tank 
and the reverse T3 goes through the roof and the thyroid labs get go really far down. And so it's quite interesting to see like, is that at the 72 hour mark or is it, you know, a little, or is it, you know, I, I think at the point that that starts happening, it's like, maybe that's where you're getting maximal autophagy or maybe that's where your body's like, I'm done. Like I'm just shutting down right now. And I, I think you could make a case at least mm -hmm. Theoretically, that once you start to see testosterone drop and the, the reverse T3 go way up and those thyroid labs change, you're like, okay, now it's time to refeed and then do it again, depending what your goal is. And for me, you know, I try and do one extended fast per month, but I may not be doing it enough. And I'm, I'm sort of flirting with that like 48 uh, hour, uh, four, 38 to 48 hours. Okay. Yeah. That's so two days. I think you're right. I think that, that there are really, it depends on what your personal goals are. And obviously with 80% of the country being overweight or 70 to 80% depending on which region of the country you live, uh, their primary goals are going to be to lose weight. So they may need to do it more frequently, but for, for someone like myself and, and others that their goal is to in, uh, improve your lean muscle mass. So I'd like to gain about 20 pounds if I could. And I was doing the partial fast twice a week, but I think that's too frequent for me. And I'm going to bump it down to once. And I think I could gain a one or two pounds a week of muscle mass, not, yeah. not visceral fat. And uh, I'm going to play with that. So I think you, it really does depend. You've got to customize it for your specific circumstances. Yeah. I've noticed that if I do it too much, I will lose, um, I'll lose muscle mass too. And, you know, for where I'm at, like with surfing and jujitsu and working out and, you know, Muay Thai and stuff, I think like, ah, uh, I want to keep the muscle mass I've, mass I've got, you know, I'm not trying to be a bodybuilder. And if you look at me next to Mark Bell, I look pretty, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, podcast you were on for a few hours. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. And who, who I just interviewed for my podcast the other oh, day. Oh, oh, yeah. So yeah, I've, yeah, I've been, I love Mark. Those guys are great, but yeah, those guys are huge. And there's all these different degrees of what we're looking for. You know, I like having a moderate amount of muscle, so I still have flexibility and it's not to say that he's not super flexible, but you know, for like hitting the punching bag and stuff in jujitsu, it allows me to kind of walk that line between endurance and strength. And that's kind of the, the sweet spot for me. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about these polyphenols. Cause I think there's I've sort of went on deep dive on many of them. And these are all, of course, mostly plant-based compounds and seem to have enormous potential therapeutic value, uh, especially with respect to doing two things. One is increasing pretty radically the benefits of autophagy and, and activating these uh, metabolic pathways. You know, examples would be like resveratrol for CERT1, and uh, there's so many others, EGCG, uh, berberine, curcumin. So they, and I, I thought, I initially believed that it was probably wise to take them on a regular basis before you go to bed, where you have a little bit of autophagy activating to begin, begin with. But I re realized there's not much autophagy and it's probably not a good idea. So now I'm only doing it when I partial fast, which is only once a week now. And I'm wondering, what conclusions you've reached and any concerns that you may have about using these polyphenols. And, and it is sort of an extension of that. There is a, uh, a specific polyphenol called fisetin and quercetin, which uh, are now being used for senolytic therapy. And senolytic therapy is sort of leading edge longevity strategies to remove senescent cells. Senescent cells are senile cells that essentially stop reproducing, but they're still active and they create these inflammatory molecules and they're typically cytokines that cause metabolic havoc in your body. You don't need a large percentage of them to radically accelerate the aging process. So they're using these uh, polyphenols to eliminate these senescent cells. It's called senolytic therapy. So 
why don't you give a comment on that? Yeah, this is this is probably the most interesting part of the whole discussion for me, um, and perhaps the most the place where I differ from many people in opinion, and that could mean that I'm radically wrong, but it means <laughs> I'm radical, you know? I mean, I could be radically wrong or, and, and about to radically get schooled and learn, or, I, or I've got a disruptive concept here. But the, the interesting part about polyphenols, so if you think about plants, the, the idea, when I try and talk to people and I say, why do you eat plants? What benefits do plants have for humans? They'll say fiber, and vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients, presumably they're referring to polyphenols. Well, we don't need to go down the first two rabbit holes. I've thoroughly discussed, you know, non-human need for fiber and um, there's- well, We I, haven't on this, this one, but if we have time, we, we can mention that. Yeah, we can, I'm, we can. Yeah. People, but I want you to finish this discussion first. Yeah, yeah, if we have time, we'll go back to fiber. But the basic thing, the basic idea of fiber is that if we really look at the literature, it's quite questionable whether fiber has any real benefit for humans. And we can talk about the microbiome in fiber, which is very interesting. Um, and then if we look at nutrients, you know, it goes back to kind of that first principles nutritional approach that says, well, actually, there aren't really any unique nutrients in plants that humans need in terms of vitamins and minerals. We actually even know now that you can get plenty of vitamin C for optimal antioxidant function just from eating animal foods, nose to tail. And the last part is really the cool stuff, which is the polyphenols. And this is where I would say my ideas break from the, more, the norm most radically. And I'll try and I'll try and lay this out for people. So I think that the mainstream or I shouldn't say the mainstream, but I think that the, the, the predominant idea is that polyphenols have benefit for humans in a variety of ways, most of which are hermetic, this concept of hormesis or, or epigenetic. You know, I think resveratrol, people would say, is epigenetic because it's modifying, you know, it's affecting the transcription of the sirtuin genes. But molecules like sulforaphane and some of these other molecules are, are hormetics. And what's so interesting to me about this concept is that, is that once I started looking at this, I saw a pattern begin to emerge. And the pattern is what, the patterns are really interesting to me. And the pattern that I began to see was that, hearkening back to what I said earlier, animals and plants are really from a different operating system. I've used this metaphor before that animals, you know, are sort of like, we're sort of like Macintosh and plants are sort of like IBM. And you can tell my intrinsic bias there, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the idea is that if we look at the way that plant molecules act in humans, my well, hypothesis or my suggestion. You should, you should change that metaphor and have the plants be the, the Apple operating system because it's Apple, right? I know. <laughs> that's true. I mean, that's, people have pointed that out to me. So maybe I should, but I just, I like my Mac, right? I okay. like, <laughs> there's my intrinsic bias. Uh, Apple, I'm not affiliated with Apple. Apple is not a sponsor, unfortunately. But, you know, the idea is that when we consume these plant molecules, they're from a different operating system. And there, I agree, I'm super excited about all the research and the thinking that's going on with regard to plant molecules and saying, can these assist with longevity or human health? But I'm sort of the voice in the background tempering that and saying, oh, wait, do they have a unique effect? That's my first question about the polyphenols. Is what they are doing something that we cannot achieve naturally through you know, exercise or heat stress or cold stress or ketosis, and I'll illustrate that in a second. So do they have a unique effect? And what the pattern that I begin to see is that because they're from a different operating system, there's usually somewhere that we can find they're harming people on the back end. 
And so my concern is that the research often focuses on the benefit, which is awesome because people want to see the benefit. But if we look through the whole body, and this is, I think, where we sometimes get a little too excited and we, we jump to conclusions, we often see dangerous effects in other parts of the body. So I'll illustrate this with sulforaphane. So sulforaphane is this compound that is, you know, widely touted as beneficial and everyone is now eating broccoli sprouts, tons and tons of broccoli sprouts because broccoli sprouts have sulforaphane. Well, the way sulforaphane works is this, in the compound, in the brassica family of vegetables, this is all the mustard vegetables, kale, collard greens, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cabbage. Um, there are a series of compounds that are called glucosinolates. And if we actually look at the botanical classification, if we look at the botany, glucosinolates are plant pesticides, meaning they are compounds produced by the plants that are meant to harm insects and animals eating the plant. They are pesticides. Now, there are pesticides we spray on plants, but the majority of pesticides that we humans ingest are endogenous pesticides. These are compounds that are produced by the plants to discourage us from eating them. There's a great paper by Bruce Ames. It's called Dietary Pesticides 99.99% All Natural. And on the second page of that paper, there's a chart. And the chart is 44 plant pesticides found in cabbage. And glucosinolates are one of those families. Also included are things like allyl, isothiocyanate. But we're talking about isothiocyanates here. And if you look up isothiocyanate on the internet, 98% of what you'll find is very positive, but we need to tell the whole story. So the way this works is that sulforaphane is produced when the precursor, which is glucoraphanin, combines with the enzyme myrosinase, and then sulforaphane is produced. Now we know how sulforaphane works in the human body. It's an oxidant. It's, a, it's an oxidant, meaning it's a hormetic molecule. If sulforaphane has benefit, it does so by triggering the NRF2 pathway in the human body, which is the pathway in the liver that responds to oxidative stressors. We know that things like smoking, tobacco, even polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines producing the charring of meat trigger the same pathway. Excuse me for interrupting, but it has four other mechanisms too. It increases heat shock protein, proteins, it in, increases the... Uh, product the rate limiting enzyme glutathione production and it's a histone deacetylase inhibitor. Yeah, and so the main, but with regard to glutathione, so it's going to pump up the glutathione by hitting NRF2, right? So no, no, it, hits, it actually hits the rate limiting enzyme. It increases the production of the rate limiting enzyme of glutathione, glutamate and, and cysteine. Yeah, glutamate, cysteine, ligase. Yeah, gamma glutamyl ligase or yeah. Yeah. And so what's interesting about this molecule is we know that sulforaphane is going to increase our endogenous supply of glutathione. And that's probably happening because it's doing these mechanisms directly and because it's an oxidant triggering the NRF2 pathway, which is sort of the toxin pathway. But what we never hear about is that it can go in and do these good things, but then it also circulates in the human body. And because it's from a different operating system, it's been found to have negative effects as well both in rodent models and in humans. So this family of plants, the brassica plants, are responsible for a huge number of cases of goiter, endemic goiter, in the world. And they're probably the biggest contributor to that because they are goitrogenic molecules. Goitrogenic molecules also include molecules like amiodarone, lithium, um, toxic molecules that inhibit or compete with iodine for absorption at the level of the thyroid. But 
systemically or population-wise in the world, the major cause of endemic goiter and cretinism, which is an, uh, a, you know, a prenatal condition of inadequate iodine, are goitrogenic plants like the brassicate vegetables. So it's a really big deal. So what we're seeing here, this is how the plant, this is what the molecule's really made for by the plant. It doesn't actually exist as sulforaphane in broccoli or kale or anything. That molecule is so oxidatively reactive with other molecules, meaning that it will go in and lose electrons, um, you know, and, and create free radicals um, in, in plants that it will kill the plant. So it can't exist. So we see this pattern. Again, this goes back to the pattern of plants and my concerns about this, that when plants have this, they have this sort of poisonous oxidant molecule and they store it in a precursor form. And the only way that sulforaphane is produced in the mustard family is when you chew the plant. So sulforaphane is not a molecule the plant is using. Evolutionarily, it's a molecule the plant is, is, is producing to deter predators from eating it. Now, you're making a great point that we do see some benefits from it, but the thing that concerns me is that, oh, but we also see negatives from it, right? We see dangerous things happening with sulforaphane. And, I would, and there's so many people having now potentially hypothyroidism or issues with thyroid that could be connected with broccoli sprouts. And I've posted sort of case studies or people that have messaged me on Instagram talking about how they were doing tons of broccoli sprouts and they developed thyroid issues, et cetera. So at this level, it's kind of at the case report anecdotal level, but it's a really interesting idea that like, wait, so fluorophane is actually a plant toxin. And what the, in response to the points that you illustrate, I think there's this fascinating idea that like none of those mechanisms is unique to sulforaphane. We know that through things like heat stress, cold stress, exercise, and fasting and ketosis, we can do all those things. We can increase glutathione. We can increase, you know, we can, we can achieve histone deacetylase inhibition with beta-hydroxybutyrate. We can get adequate levels of glutathione. In fact, there's a fascinating study of swimmers in Berlin who swim in the frigid waters in the winter. And it shows that cold plunging can increase all these same enzymes and, and activate all of these mechanisms around glutathione. So the way that I would illustrate it for people with uh, sulforaphane as sort of an example molecule here is that it can do some good things through these hormetic mechanisms, but these are not unique to sulforaphane. We can do these on our own by living what I would call a radical life. And then there are dangers on the back end. So my hypothesis, one of the points that I like to suggest to people is perhaps many of these plant polyphenols are net negative. And it kind of argues more toward um, live a radical life and get the optimal positive, you know? And so this is what we're expanding and where we're learning. I don't think we fully know, and there are so many polyphenols. I could also talk about resveratrol a little bit, which is another good illustration of this concept. Well, thank you for bringing out those concerns and dangers, and I think it is appropriate, and that's actually one of the reasons why I reduced my ingestion by probably 90%. Uh, but uh, sulforaphane is not a uh, polyphenol, it's an isothiocyanate. Yes, yes, yes. So, but the other polyphenols are different, and I'm wondering, um, yeah, I mean, clearly, there's just no question, and your reasoning is, is, is rational and solid, that it, and a strong support against the continuous use of these these polyphenols. Uh, but I'm wondering if smaller amounts less frequently, certainly I don't think more than once a week, but maybe even once a month, maybe a really powerful hormetic biohack to massively increase the benefits of autophagy or senolytic therapy. 
It's possible. I love, I love the discuss. I love the idea. It's just like, yeah, I think that's what we're trying to figure out, you know? Um, but I think that my concern is that most people are eating a heck load of broccoli sprouts every, every day right now. And I mean, I just published, you know, I just put it, I just put an article on my Instagram the other day. There's a case report of oxalate nephropathy with a green smoothie cleanse. You know, I mean, oxalates are a common. Oh, geez. Yeah. Probably from kale. We have, yeah. We, what's that? Probably from kale or spinach. It was, it's from spinach. Yeah. Kale, depending on the varietal of kale, there's a smaller amount of oxalate, but uh, spinach is a very high amount of oxalates. I did an interview with Sally K. Norton on my YouTube channel. It'll be out on my podcast soon, but yeah, oxalates are a big deal. We didn't even talk about oxalates. Um, but yeah, there, we know that daily consumption of these plant molecules is just like, well, it's probably not a good thing. Oxalates are obtained primarily through plants, right? Oh yeah, yes. They're, they're exclusive. So they, oxalates are a byproduct of human metabolism, but we only produce a small amount from the catabolism of hydroxyproline, and then we're able to excrete it. But the majority, the vast majority of our intake of oxalates, which is a two carbon molecule, it's two carbons and a bunch of oxygens, um, the vast majority of our intake is from plants because plants use oxalate to hold on to minerals. Humans don't use oxalate. It's just a waste byproduct. Glycine can be metabolized through the glyoxo pathway and hydroxyproline can be metabolized through a B6 dependent pathway to form oxalate. And then we excrete it in very small, very small amounts. But one green smoothie can have 800, 1000 milligrams of oxalate, which is probably, you know, 20, 20 times what we would produce in a day from our normal, you know, metabolism. We might make 25 or 50 milligrams of oxalate excreted every day. But one green smoothie with spinach especially could have a thousand milligrams. And um, so apparently in the literature, the, the lethal dose, so the LD50 for oxalate is between 3.5 grams and 30 grams. <laughs> it's completely obtainable from a diet. Like if you ate three pounds of spinach, you could get a dose of oxalate that has killed someone in the past. There's a case report of somebody dying from a four gram dose of oxalate. He ate a bunch of sorrel soup. Sorrel is oxalis genus. So anyway, oxalate is a whole different story other than the plant pesticides and plant molecules. But it's just, you're right, the sulforaphane is not a polyphenol, but um, these plant molecules are like that. Resveratrol is a polyphenol. Yeah, no, it's, thing. it's a very good point. I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, you can mediate against the oxic toxicity by sprinkling in some non-well-absorbed uh, calcium, like calcium, uh, calcium oxide. That one is not absorbed really well. And it'll, it'll bind to the, uh, the oxalates. Yes, you can. And then, and then you don't absorb it because you just eliminate your stool. But it's still it's sort of a mood issue because you have other, so many other strong arguments not to have these plants on a regular basis. So I guess, you know, we're getting close to the amount of time we have left. So I, I really want you to uh, comment on some of the strongest arguments against avoiding these plants. Cause you, you've been off of plants for a long time now. And, yeah. Eight months. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you're still reaping the benefits and we don't know. It's still relatively short term. Is, is yes. Yes. But, but uh, you're really enjoying good health and you're in fantastic shape. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things that, that I really like is I, I love doing blood work on myself. So I've probably done 350 blood tests in the last eight months. You know, I've done CRP six times and every single time it's less than 0.03. This is HSCRP. So the units are milligrams per liter. So it's the most highly sensitive CRP. It's essentially undetectable times six. 
eating a diet that's like all meat. I've checked lipids and, you know, markers of endothelial function, um, et cetera, et cetera. I've checked micronutrients multiple times. I've checked my gut flora twice, um, looking at quantitative PCR. Uh, I've done organic acids. So it's this fascinating experiment for me. I've done things like 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, which is a measure of DNA damage. I've looked at heavy metal. What, what, what was it? Was it? I would assume it was. It was, it was uh, two. It was two. So it was very low. And then lipid peroxides. Um, yeah. So, you know, you can check. I've looked at my glutathione levels. Incidentally, my coenzyme Q10 levels are off the chart high. You know? Really? What, what do you attribute that to? Oh, just there's so much coenzyme Q10 in meat oh. and muscle meat. Yeah. I mean, they're like, they're like 3.5. They're, they're off the chart. Um, and all the carnivores I've seen have, have super, super high levels of, um, of, uh, of coenzyme Q10. So it's, I mean, you got to think like, I mean, that's not a direct, you know, indicator of mitochondrial function, but that, that part of the electron transport chain is greased. That is greased lightning, man. That is just going. So, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting, and this is one of the conversations that I really like having in the carnivore space is saying, hey, this is a radical thing. We really need to examine this carefully and do blood testing and make sure it's safe for people because it seems to help people with autoimmune disease, you know? I've seen people with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and eczema and psoriasis, like, resolve, which is just mind-boggling, and it just really was what originally drew me to it. But, you know, the flip side is I need to make sure, or, you know, I'm excited to be part of this movement and say, you know, are people going to get deficiencies? I don't think so. I think there's an evolutionary basis for this. But, you know, what are, how do we show this is safe and then get some pilot studies going? Because it's my, it's my strengthening suspicion that, uh, that this is going to be a, a very useful tool for us in the medical world uh, moving forward. That's, that's uh, I couldn't agree with that more. And now you're very close to finishing your residency and we'll be going into private practice or maybe not private practice, but going to practice. And I'm, wonder, I'm wondering two things. One is why the heck did you pick psychiatry? We're <laughs> <laughs> going from car. I mean, why wouldn't you be a, an internist or, right, right. or a cardiologist? You have you come from that, that background, but then what, what type of, what, what, are, what are your plans for practice? So psychiatry is an interesting story. Um, when I was in medical school, I thought very strongly about internal medicine. I actually uh, really, I applied to some joint programs, internal medicine, psychiatry, family medicine, psychiatry. But ultimately, I decided on psychiatry because I liked how human it was. And I liked the human story. And I also realized that, the, that psychiatry needed a lot of help. That I think that of, of, any, of any of the medical specialties, I felt like the paradigm in psychiatry was the most antiquated. And really, if you look at the burden of mental health in this country, it, is, it is colossal. And yeah. I think the most recent CDC estimates are that depression and anxiety are the number one source of morbidity in our mm -hmm. country. There's more productivity loss to depression and anxiety than anything else heart attack, stroke, any cardiovascular disease or cancer, depression and anxiety are the biggest. And so I thought, well, that's the biggest piece of the pie. And I love the human side of it. You know, I think that I, I, I will, I never want to forget my internal medicine. And I'm constantly like geeking out with my internist friends and my gastroenterologist friends and having them remind me of things and looking at mechanisms and 
doing all of these, you know, trying to keep my internal medicine knowledge. But I love the human story in psychiatry that when someone comes to you and they say, hey, I'm so depressed, I don't even have a will to live, you think that just hits me in my gut. You know, that's a human to human interaction. And I liked, I really liked in medical school that when I did psychiatry, the patient didn't get lost in the labs. I love that I could keep the human story and that I saw, I was much more able to like, you know, connect with the person at a human level. It kept me human. It kept me young. And so I love that. And it's really satisfying to be able to help people with psychiatric illness because if the mind isn't right, nothing else works well. You know, it's totally true. It's, it's like, it's like foundational, you know, I, you know, like our outlook is so crucial that if someone's depressed or anxious, they're not going to be able to do anything else for their health. And I would argue that a lot of our issues with health behaviors and people not choosing to eat well or not exercising are based on the fact that there's underlying depression and anxiety or just demoralization, or they're just not living a life that they're passionate about. They don't have love and, you know, emotion and passion in their life. And so it's just really cool to be able to start there. Yeah. Second there, question. There, there, let me just comment that there is a, another, lead, well, now deceased, leading pioneer in, in natural medicine was Abram Hoffer, who was a psychiatrist. Yeah. And interestingly, he really pioneered the work of niacin and secondarily NAD+. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's fascinating. Now, your second question is, is interesting for me. I'm, I'm so excited about this carnivore movement and the potential for diet in general and food to continue helping people. In the near future, my plan is to move to San Diego and open a private practice there doing functional medicine. And what I've quickly learned about functional medicine is that it all starts in the gut, you know, <laughs> or that, that you have to be, that every functional medicine doctor has to be a gastroenterologist, you know. I have a friend who's a gastroenterologist who says that all, all medicine is gastroenterology, and I at least say that, like, yeah, it's probably true. It all starts there. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be treating patients in my practice who are psychiatric and non-psychiatric because I really think it's all connected. You know, like I hinted at earlier, I really believe that a lot of psychiatric illness is autoimmune in nature and that... Uh, that, um, that, a, that a big part of improving that in the future is going to be treating that, um, you know, treating people from that perspective um, in, a very, in a very holistic way. And so, so I, really, I really like that perspective. And I'll be treating people with, with, all, sorts of, um, with all sorts of conditions from GI to autoimmune. And um, yeah, I think it's going to be really exciting. And then I'm also doing all kinds of cool stuff. I'm writing a book. Uh, which is going to be out in about four or five months. I'll send you a copy. Yeah, and, we'll, we'll definitely have you again. You oh know, yeah, for that. A- absolutely. Because we could go on for hours. There's just so, I know. I we'll so have to do a part so two. Dialogue about. Yeah. So I'm starting to speak at conferences. I'm going to be at KetoCon in Austin in June. I'm writing a book. Um, I've got my own podcast, which is called Fundamental Health with me, Paul Saladino, MD. And, and I'm on, how do people find that? They go to YouTube and type in Fundamental Health? Yep. So Fundamental Health is going to be launched on iTunes and Stitcher and, um, and uh, Spotify this week. It's already on YouTube. If people Google my name on YouTube, it's on my channel. So it's on the Paul Saladino MD channel on YouTube. And then the podcast is called Fundamental Health. They'll find it under that on all of the sort of streaming uh, audio outlets. Um, but yeah, I'm going to be in San Diego. I'm going to probably be in North County, San Diego. Okay. I'm on, I'm on Instagram at, do you, do you, do you uh, plan, do you plan on doing virtual consults too? Or yes. Yes, I do. All right. So if someone, I mean, by the time this, this interview airs, you'll have finished your residency and you'll probably be establishing your practice. So if someone was 
interested in seeing you for some conditions. And I would strongly recommend you're like such an amazing resource because literally in the not too distant future, you're going to, you're not going to be able to get an appointment with you. It's very (laughs) about that. So this is an amazing opportunity if you want to access your knowledge and and really apply to yourself personally. How would they contact you? So the best way to get in touch with me for virtual consultation or in-person consultation right now is just directly through email. My email is paulsaladinomd at gmail.com. In, in the greatest stroke of irony, my last name is Saladino. So it's S-A-L-A-D-I-N-O. So there's salad in my last name, but there's also dinosaur in my last name. <laughs> so there's both. Yeah. So if people want to reach out to me for a consultation, they can just send me an email directly. All right. Well, boy, this has been awesome. I've been so looking forward to this, this uh, dialogue and I look forward to future dialogues and I really want to extend my deep appreciation for all you're doing and really uh, serving as a model for other physicians to really honor their internal curiosity and really seek the foundational causes and continue to push the frontiers because we just don't know a fraction of a fraction of what we need to know. People like you who are helping us uh, increase the depth of our understanding is vitally important areas. Well, thank you so much. That means, that means so much to me coming from you, who's really like a pioneer in the field and someone that I've looked up to. And I've heard of you for years. When I was in medical school, I was reading your stuff, man. So like, we're talking, we go way back, you know, you just didn't know that I was reading your stuff then. And so that means so much to me coming from you. And, and I, I feel so much gratitude to be able to do this. It's such a privilege. You know, I, you know, my father always said that it was a privilege to be a physician um, I feel privileged to be a physician and just to be able to contribute to this. And it's so meaningful to be able to offer people some pathway to improved quality of life and hope, however that is. If it's carnivore or whatever we all discover as we're all continuing to explore is the optimal way for people to live well. So thank you so much for having me on. It's a total uh, pleasure. You're welcome. And uh, again, you, you, you're really knocking it out of the park and we just need a lot more people like you. So thank you. Thank you. Raise the bar. All right. Well, we'll be in touch soon. And uh, I look forward to reading the draft and you've got my email contact. So I do, yeah. Forward me the co- your draft as soon as you have it done, because it's going to take me a while to read it. And then we have to schedule your event. I'd like to launch that uh, interview before your book is published. Sounds great. Thank you so much. All right. Talk to you soon.